And welcome back to the Word Encounter episode 236. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. We ended with chapter 9 yesterday, so let's pick it up in chapter 10. And Paul gives a warning from Israel's past to the people. And it says, uh, let's drop down to verse 6. Um, as he's, uh, he, he goes through in the first five verses uh, some historical events and how they were punished, how the Israelites were punished uh, by God because of what they did. And he says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. This was talking about when Moses was up on the mount talking to the Lord, when Aaron was making a golden calf for them to worship, and they were about uh, partying and carousing. Uh, they got involved in uh, orgy activities and, and other things. And he says, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died you know, from God's wrath because of their behavior. They had forgotten how he had taken them out of Egypt, how he had brought them into freedom. And uh, there was some uh, murmurings going on in the crowd about how they should go back to, to, to Egypt or worship their idols and whatnot. And this angered God. In verse 9, it says, Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, what Paul is saying is don't forget the past. See, don't forget the past. Don't not learn from the past. You know, you know people repeat mistakes all the time because they don't learn from the past. Then it says in verse 13, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. It says, nothing is coming your way that is uh, extraordinary or unusual. Everybody has to deal with these temptations. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. See, God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle through his son. All temptations that come our way can be handled through his son, Jesus. It says, but with the temptation, he also provides the way out so that you will be able to bear it. See, he says that you will be able to bear these temptations and the way you bear these temptations is through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross so that we might have the opportunity to approach a sinless God by cleansing ourselves through his blood. So a way has been provided. And so we don't need to succumb to sin because sin has been um, uh, sin hasn't been rendered uh, uh, powerless but we have been given the power to overcome sin should we choose to use it. It says warning against idolatry. And so what we have to remember, we have to remember the context of the times, right? And so Paul is dealing with the food sacrifice to idols as this was a huge issue in Corinth, a huge issue. But we can apply the principles to our forms of idol worship today. And so he's talking about food but this, this, this can be really be applied to any form of idol worship. Let's drop down here to verse 21. It says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we uh, provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is talking specifically about the communion table. See, and so the communion table was being defiled by all kind of things, all kind of wrong behaviors, wrong thought process. We're going to get into details of that in a little bit here. Um, and so Paul is kind of addressing this a little bit now, but he's going to address it in detail a little bit later. And so 
he's calling to uh, to to uh, he's calling their attention to the serious nature of the communion table. Okay. <clears throat> then it says Christian liberty in verse twenty three. Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. We've, we talked about that in yesterday's episode, how um, we have liberty in Christ. Everything is permissible. I'm not talking about the sinful things, but these disputable matters that people were wondering about, but not everything is beneficial. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean we should do it if it's going to harm another brother or sister in their spiritual walk, not physically, but in their spiritual walk. It says in verse 24, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising uh, questions for the sake of conscience. And so he says, whatever's sold in the meat market, you can go ahead and buy it. And don't, you don't need to sit there and ask questions. Where did this meat come from? Was this meat sacrificed to idols? And you're trying to interrogate the seller to find out the origins of the meat as to whether or not you should buy it. So Paul is saying, look, just partake without without uh, 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 questioning anything so that you're raising questions in your head or anything. Don't look for trouble. <laughs> Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, if any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. In other words, for the sake of your conscience, don't ask your host, where did this meat come from? You know, or where did this come from? He says, eat whatever is placed before you. <clears throat> But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it uh, out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. In other words, if somebody says this food was, satisf- uh, was sacrificed to idols and that person is, 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 um, is, is conscious of this and that person uh, subscribes to the notion that we shouldn't be eating meat that's sacrificed to idols, then Paul is saying, then don't eat it. See, for the sake of that person's conscience, don't eat it. It says in verse 29, I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's conscience. For why, my, <clears throat> for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? And so, again, Paul is, is trying to get them to be other-oriented. Don't just think about yourself and what's permissible to you and what you feel you can do and not do. You have to be considerate of where other people are coming from, your other brothers and sisters. In verse 30, he says, if I partake with thanksgiving, if I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized? Because of something for which I give thanks. And so, again, this is a freedom that Paul can have, but he's going to choose not to take it because, again, he doesn't want to harm his brother or sister. So whether you eat or drink or whatever, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Give no reason for anybody to be offended in this regard with this, as far as this matter of food is concerned. But I would extend that to other things as well in disputable matters. You know, don't do anything that's going to offend your brother or sister. See? <laughs> because then that's selfish, right? It says in verse 33, just as I also told you, or just as I also, wait, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. And so we have to be other-oriented. In other words, we have to be other-conscious. We have to um, be able, we have to know, sometimes be able to discern what may offend another brother or sister, so as we don't do things that are perfectly legal and perfectly permissible, but it might harm their walk. It might damage their faith. Chapter 11, Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, look, 
as long as I'm walking with Christ, then you can imitate me. But you need to know enough, and, and I say this as a warning to everybody out there seeing or listening to this, you need to know enough about Christ to know whether somebody is walking in the footsteps of Christ or not. Because everybody can veer off. That's possible. And when they veer off, you've got to be able to discern that that person that I've been following, they veered off from the walk. I can no longer follow them. You, know? you, you, don't, you just don't fi- follow somebody blindly. It says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Instructions about head coverings. Now, we could get into... This can get really dicey in what we're about to discuss here. But we have to keep in mind, we have to keep in mind the vast cultural differences that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. You had Greeks, Jews, you had Romans, you had Orientals. You had all kind of people with all kind of different cultural backgrounds bringing all that stuff into the church. And this, Paul is responding to a letter because the church leadership is confused with regard to how do we handle this stuff. And one of these things had to do with head coverings of women. You had different cultural norms with regard to Jewish women. Uh, the cultural norm was to wear a head covering when you prayed. You know, the Greek women, probably not. You know, and who knows what the Roman and the Oriental women were like. I don't know. And so you had all of these different ideas with regard to what was right, what was wrong. And so this is what Paul is dealing with. And so uh, it says in verse 3, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of every woman. And in some other translations, it says the husband is the head of every uh, wife. It doesn't mean that men in general are the head of women. And we have to be careful when we talk about the head. And it says here, and God is the head of Christ. Now, God the Father is the head of Christ, but in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost is kind of, uh, you know, God in three parts. They're all kind of equal, okay? (laughs) And it says in verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered uh, dishonors his head. And so Paul is saying, this is the Jewish norm. And so Paul, Paul is putting out the Jewish norm. A man is not, so that's a lot of times when people, when men pray, they take their hats off. You know, I do it. I do it. I, I, I started doing this without even knowing why, <laughs> you know, a long time ago when I was a teenager. And because everybody else was doing it, I guess that's why I did it. But it's a sign of respect, okay, and honor. And so I didn't know that, you know, um, you know it was a part of the word, actually. And so <clears throat> it says every woman who prophesies, who prays or prophesies with her head, uncovered dishonors her head. So you'll see prayer shawls in the Middle East where you put it over your head, when you put it over their head and pray and prophesy, I guess, I don't know, um, as, as, as um, because of the word here, okay? And so... Let's drop down here. It says, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and the glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man or a wife is the glory of her husband. I'm going to get into more details and all of this. So don't, if you're, if you're offended, don't get offended. You know, this is the word of God. Don't get offended. It says, for man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And so man came, was created, Adam was created by God. And then Eve came out of Adam's rib. And then it says in verse nine, Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Now, there's another interesting way you can read this. So you can say, women didn't need men, but men needed women. (laughs) And so, because God created for man a helper. God saw that Adam, essentially that Adam was deficient. And he says, well, I will create a helper for you. And he created Eve, you know, because Adam couldn't do it on his own. And then we go to verse 10. 
This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, what this means is I'm not exactly sure. And I've read a number of commentaries and I'm not exactly sure they know what this means. But it could mean that, you know, in order for a woman to have the full capability of her authority um, and an assistant from the angels, you know, she has her head covered as a symbol of that assistance of authority from the angels. I don't know. Verse 11. It says, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. Men and women are interdependent, okay? For just as a woman came from a man, so man comes through women, and all things come from God. Women came from men, but man comes through woman. You know, through the woman's womb, people are born, but all things come from God. Everything is, is intertwined and related. All things come from God, Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her, hair, uh, for her hair is given to her as a cover. And so what this is saying is that nature even testifies to the distinction between men and women. See, There's, there's none of this... Uh, unisex type of thing where there's no distinction between men and women. See, it says nature even essentially testifies that there's a distinction between men and women. The Lord's Supper, verse 17. Now in, uh, now in giving this uh, instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, uh, excuse me, since you come together not for the better but for the worse. So now we're new, moving into a different topic. Now Paul is getting back to this communion table thing. He's not happy with the way they're doing it. He says, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, see, because you're not doing it right. It says, for, uh, to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So he says, I hear what's going on, and in part of it, I know this to be true. He says in verse 20, when you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. When you come together, you're not coming together to dine. You're not coming together to eat. You're not coming together to have dinner. <clears throat> so apparently that's what a lot of them thought they were coming together for. And Paul is saying, no, that's not why you're coming together. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? In other words, he's saying people are coming in and some people are stuffing themselves with food and other people are drinking and getting drunk and whatnot because you're coming together to, to, to have dinner and, and that sort of thing. But that's not the purpose of this. He said, do that at home. Before you come to the Lord's table, do that at home. We drop down to verse 23. For I receive... Uh, for I received from, excuse me, for I received from the Lord uh, what I also pass on to you. In other words, Paul is saying, this is why you come together. Let me explain it to you. He says, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, for many of you, that might sound familiar. That is where we take our instructions for our Christian communion. We come together 
to partake of the bread, which is representative of the Lord's body, and the cup, which is the representative of his blood of the new covenant. And we sup together over the bread and the cup in order to remember the sacrifice of, G- of Jesus on the cross so that we align ourselves and we identify with the sacrifice and identify with the purpose of the sacrifice. That's why we come together and sup. It's not to dine, it's not to eat. It's in remembrance. And then Paul, Paul goes on in self-examination. He says in verse 27, So, then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink uh, from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, Paul is saying, look, don't casually take this communion thing. Don't casually come to the Lord's table. Don't casually take the bread and the wine in remembrance of the body and the blood and just, just take it as some rote tradition. He says, examine yourself, you know, because if you eat and drink this without recognizing the body, without recognizing what Jesus has done, it says you eat and drink judgment on yourself. When you take Holy Communion, it is in fact that, holy. It is to be approached in a holy manner. It is to be taken seriously. And then he says in verse 30, this is why many of you are sick and ill. And many have fallen asleep or many have died. It says, if we are properly judging ourselves, we would not be, if we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, if we take this communion seriously, if we approach it rightly, if we properly examine ourselves as we approach communion, it says, uh, then we would not be judged. But we don't do that. And so therefore, many of you are sick and many of you have died. This is serious business. It says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So if we don't do, if we don't properly self-examine, then we will be disciplined by the Lord. They might result in some deaths, but he's doing it so that we won't be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. So he's saying, instead of doing it the way you're doing it, do it this way. Welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. Let's go into chapter 12. It says diversity of spiritual gifts. Now concerning uh, spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be ignorant. I want you to know what the deal is. He says now there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God, the same God works all of them in each, uh, in each person. Verse 7, manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. And so when you get a gift of the Spirit, it's not for you. It's for the common good, for everybody's good. And people get uh, distributed with different gifts. It says to the one, uh, to the one, wait, to one is given a message Uh, of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another 
prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues. It says different kinds of tongues. That suggests that there are multiple kinds of tongues. To another interpretation of tongues. In other words, we see here that there are a bunch of different gifts. Jesus had the fullness of them all. But it says here, man has just a portion of them. And so he said, you, you get this one. You know, Jimmy, you get this one. Mike, you get this one. James, you get this one. You know, Paul, you get this one. Dimitri, you get that one. You know, Jose, you get this one. You know, Maria, you get this one. And so different gifts are distributed to different people. It says in verse 11, one in the same spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. It's not up to us what, what gift we get. We get distributed the gift as he wills. This is unity yet diversity in the body. For just as the body is one in as many parts and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. He's talking about our body, a physical body. We have fingers, we have toes, we have legs, we have arms, we have limbs, we have necks. It's one body, but a lot of different parts with a lot of different functions. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink out of. It says in verse 14, indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, don't, I don't belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less uh, a part of the body. If an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. It doesn't matter. You know, your eye, each eye is important. Each finger is important, you know, to the body. Each leg is important. Each limb is important. You know, the nose is important. Each lip is important. You know, they're not the whole body, they are part, but they're critical to the proper function of that body. It says in verse 18, but as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? (laughs) The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we close with these greater honor. We give greater honor to those things that we don't think are as important as what Paul is saying. And our unrespectable uh, parts are treated with greater respect. And so this is talking about the function in the church. See, we elevate people you know, ba- based on how uh, uh, important we think their function is. Paul is saying, turn that upside down. The janitor you know, is more important than the preacher. The guy who watches the parking lot is more important than the deacon. You know, this is what Paul is saying. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, so that we wouldn't be into jealousy and envy and fighting inside the body. This is why he's done that. But that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members in it. And God has appointed these, uh, the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, uh, helping, leading various kinds of tongues, and all the apostles. Oh, excuse me, in verse 29, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But um, desire the uh, greater gift, and I will show you an even better way. And so Paul is saying, look, everybody isn't given everything. You see, not all are prophets, not all are, 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 are apostles, not all are teachers, not all do miracles. 
Not all given, but everybody is given a measure of something. And he says, do all speak in tongues? This is critical because tongues, in my opinion, is a disputable matter that causes strife and division within the body of Christ. See, uh, Paul is essentially saying not everybody speaks in tongues. But there's some people that out there think that, you know, speaking in tongues is a sign that you're a true Christian. If you don't, then you're not a true Christian. But there's no support for that. This is my opinion based on the word. Let's go on to chapter 13. Paul is saying, I'm going to show you a better way. What's that better way? It says, love the superior way. And in biblical, let me read this definition. I love this. Biblical love is a decision, not a feeling, to compassionately, out of concern for another, righteously, based on God's standards, and sacrificially, seek the well-being of another. See, that's what biblical love is. It has nothing to do with feelings or emotions. Zero. You can, in fact, not like somebody and love them. Let's read the word. If I speak human or angelic tongues, uh, but do not have love, I am noisy. I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains, you know, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. This is a famous set of scriptures right here. It says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love is not boastful, is not arrogant, it is uh, not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is commonly spoken at weddings, but this should be the case with our neighbor, with our wives, with our husbands, you know, with our children, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the relationship is. That's what love is. Nowhere in that definition of love do you find anything about affection, emotions, or feelings. Nothing. It doesn't have to do with that. Love is an action verb. Verse 8, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes back, the partial will come to an end. So there's those things that we do, the prophesying we do in part, you know, the knowing that we know in part, and, you know, the tongues that we speak, we speak in part. It says when Jesus comes, all that will come to an end. See, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned as a child. When I became a man, I put all childish things aside. For now we see only a reflection as, a, as in a mirror. But then face to face, I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. You see, it says, for now we only see a reflection as in, an, as in a mirror. In other words, he's talking about Jesus. As for now we only see a reflection. But then face to face, see, and now I know in part, but then I will know fully. When I'm face to face with Jesus, I know in part now, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest attribute of a Bible-believing, Jesus-believing, Jesus-preaching person is the witness of their love. And love has nothing to do with emotions. How do you treat your fellow man? 
How do you train them? Do you strive to do the things that are in his or her best interest, even though it may compromise your best interest? Christianity is other-oriented. It's sacrificial love. It's giving of ourselves for the well-being of others. Not just for others that we like, not just for others that we have stuff in common with, but for others, period. That's awesome. With that, we are done for today. We'll pick it up in chapter 14. Matter of fact, we'll conclude 1 Corinthians tomorrow, and then we'll jump into 2 Corinthians on the next day. The proposition goes forth. An invitation by the Lord, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is in fact Lord, then the word says that you will not be put to shame and that you will be saved. Saved to reign and rule with him in his eternal glory. I don't believe that's an invitation that can be bypassed. Stay safe. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And should he grace us with another day, we'll see you tomorrow for the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.